0: At age 40 sitting in a meeting with general counsel looking saying what's going on on your neck I said what do you mean she said you should have that checked out I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and so now I have a di- now I have a six-month period of chemo two months after that of, of radiation all of this is happening in 2002 at the same time I'm supposed to be taking over federal good timing craziest year in the history of crazy years
1: one path is a long winding unpaved backbreaking, bumpy miserable road to a place called success the other road is straight paved smooth comfortable and that road ends up in a place called failure welcome to the show i am kyle matthews on the matthews mentality podcast where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders ceos business moguls athletes and entrepreneurs Each episode will turn our guest's wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. Welcome everybody to episode one of the Matthews Mentality Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Matthews. And with me today, we have a longtime friend of mine and the chief executive officer of Federal Realty, Don Wood. Don, thanks for coming out.
0: Kyle, I cannot believe I'm here on episode one. This, I don't know what that means, but is it, if it's anything like I, baseball cards.
1: I think it means you're important. <laughs> let me real quick, Don, you're going to love this part. I'm going to read your bio. But before I do that, let me in- introduce the viewership to Federal Realty. Fe- Federal, founded in 1962, one of the oldest— U.S. REITs. They focus on ownership, operation, and development of high-quality retail properties from grocery-anchored centers to large-scale neighborhood mixed-use centers. They're publicly traded, S&P 500 company, and they, as of yesterday, 105 properties, about 3,100 tenants, 25 million square feet, and 3,400 residential units. Don has been with Federal Realty since 1998, where he is a trustee and has served in the position's From CFO to CEO to president, before being named its chief executive in 2003. Prior to joining Federal, Don spent eight years at New York-based ITT Corp., where he served in various capacities, including deputy controller and CFO of a wholly-owned subsidiary, Caesars World Incorporated. The first seven years of his career were spent at the accounting firm Arthur Anderson, leaving in 1989 to work for client Donald Trump as the vice president of finance for the newly-acquired Trump Taj Mahal and Casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Don, you have an amazing story about that, and uh, we're definitely going to have to tell it today. But I can't thank you enough. Welcome to the show.
0: Well, it's great to be here, Kyle. Thanks for the opportunity. And first of all, did you have the top down the '69 Camaro? I did. I
1: was got. You beat me to it. Well, the first thing I was going to bring up was it was about three years ago, May 2020, the last time that you and I were together here in Nashville you were kind enough to put on the back of a trailer, what?
0: Well, this is it's just funny. COVID did a lot of things to, to a lot of people. And for me, at, in my role at Federal Realty, it was a hard time because I was going in every day and working with our team every day and really ruining value by renegotiating leases and contracts to make them, to work for the tenant, make the tenant be able to sustain COVID, but it was reducing value for Federal Realty. That kills me. The whole idea of being able to create value and go forward is just a key part of who I am. And so I needed another way to do that. And being a classic car guy since birth, the ability to sell a 69 Camaro SS, which I had no desire to sell, but to sell to you, for a three thousand dollar profit, which is nothing on a I car thought like that. You told
1: me you sold it to me for what you? Oh,
0: I totally lied to you. <laughs> totally lied to you. There, there's Shut no up, question. There enough. was there was three grand of profit in there, buddy. Nice. And and the notion of of being able to do that, putting it on a trailer, driving seven hundred miles to to Nashville is kind of silly, but it felt like
1: we were accomplishing something.
0: And I'm so glad you pulled up in it this morning. It's three years later. It looks great. You're a great steward of it. (laughs) I pulled
1: up to the office building and I I texted (laughs) you. I said, hey, come on outside. I got the car downstairs parked in the valet. And your face lit up, and you took a photo. And I, this is, you, you, we're going to get to plug Wood Motorsports here. Oh, how funny. I forgot to mention on the bio, President and CEO of Wood Motorsports, which <laughs> yeah. in many ways is a, a much more demanding and impressive role than federal, respectfully. But it is not. No. We'll no, talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but you posted it to your Instagram account. Talk to us about that account, real quick. Oh,
0: man. This started during COVID, too. I mean, our headquarters are in Maryland, but we have a small office in Virginia. I live in Virginia. And during COVID, everything was shut down in Maryland, but you could still go in in Virginia. So with no cars on the road, I started driving one of a car in my collection. I've got 35 classic cars, and I would drive one each day. And while I was driving, I just started making 30-second, 60-second, two-minute videos. And it was fun. There wasn't another car on the road or anything else like that. So, So Wood Motorsports is nothing but a bunch of idiot guys who could convene a couple of times a month to to talk cars
1: and to work you know, a on bunch cars. of idiot guys convening this this is how a lot of great things have started well just, maybe so yeah.
0: we'll see after the federal career
1: <laughs> but yeah you got this instagram you post videos and photos so make sure you follow it if you're listening we got we're gonna get you a thousand come on man volumes. wood,
0: wood under wood underscore motorsports there you go on um, instagram yeah
1: all right so so you, you mentioned you're in this period of, i want to talk about covid real quick and then we'll move forward you mentioned this time you're redoing all these leases you're Understandably so, you're doing it as a to, to give your tenants the opportunity to survive COVID because at the time nobody knew what was going on. We just knew it was bad. That was difficult in your role at Federal because it was making the company less valuable because you're bringing down the rents or you're doing rent abatements or forgiveness. All of that. You drive out to Nashville and if it's like, hey, it's making a three thousand dollar profit. That was and these are my words. That was my win. It it actually brings up a moment. I don't know if you remember this. We were outside. It was a beautiful, I think it was maybe mid to late May, beautiful May day here in Nashville. We were barbecuing, had some country music playing, having some beers, had some meat on the grill. And we were we were talking about what was going on. I mean, this is, when we say peak COVID, shut down, offices closed, nobody's allowed outside. Even in the red states at the time, I think it was still like that. And we were talking and I just, I remember I looked at you and I said, Don, you know, what's going to happen? And you said to me, and i paraphrase, but I think I got this pretty pretty clear in my mind. You said, Kyle, I own high street lifestyle, dense shopping centers in very blue cities and very blue states. I have no idea. But you know what? My small victory right now is I find a car on on the internet, I buy it, Maybe make a couple thousand bucks, and that's where I find my joy right now.
0: Sure. You're talking about April, May, June yeah. of 2020. Here's what's so interesting about that, though, and what happened. There's so much conversation about people moving to Nashville, people moving to Austin, the the Southern Belt, and all that's true and all that's really cool. But they're usually young people. What happened to the 45-year-old family person with, who was a lawyer in Washington, D.C. They stopped going into the city. They stopped going into the city. And what they did was stay at home in Bethesda, Maryland, or in the case of New York suburbs, Darien, Connecticut, or Coconut Grove, Florida, instead of Miami. And, and it, it was just really interesting because what happened was the biggest beneficiary out of COVID was those first ring suburbs of the big job yeah. centers. We couldn't see that in May of 2020. That's for darn sure. But it really has been. I mean, the best thing to come out of it was people's own realization that they're social creatures. That certainly dot com and online has a critical, important component of how they live their lives. But people like to go out. They like to eat out. They like to shop. They like to be part of what's happening in the world and. To me, it's, it was just the single biggest thing that helped the entire industry and probably will for the next decade or so and hopefully longer.
1: It, it was very valuable what you said to me because I was running a brokerage business and our business had been severely impacted. Sure. There's just nothing trading. And and it was kind of like you are saying, hey, like what choice do we have but to move forward? Okay, and let's go. We're going to figure it out. It's the, Again, I'll speak for both of us. I think it's been better over the last three years than we ever could have imagined at that moment. I was going to ask you, what lessons... Looking back, did we learn, okay, let's talk about our industry. In this case, for you, it's operating really nice retail properties. and and
0: So, look, the resilience of people is such a critical thing to keep in mind when it's the low times. We were just talking about it a few minutes ago. Make sure you don't get down during down periods. And that's an easy thing to say, and it's a hard thing to do. But it's really true. Things change quickly, and they change quickly not necessarily because – what economists are saying, because they're always wrong, it's really the it's the mentality of people. And once once there is a green shoot or two coming up through the grass, it's incredible how quickly and how resilient things have changed. And so the recovery out of COVID, I mean, we're a year and a half ahead of where we thought we would be here in twenty twenty three, and it's because of the human condition. Don't underestimate it ever. And Look, you can spend all the time you want looking backwards, but there's nothing you can do about it. So get your head forward, plow through, stay positive by having a nice balanced life. And with me today, I hope you hear the word balance about 100 times because I think it's the most important thing in life. It's not something we see very, very much today, but everything in moderation and stay balanced, stay flexible.
1: We talk about a lot at the company about just don't have a victim mentality. And again, my words, but... Bad things happen. COVID, in terms of our business, happen. Just don't be a victim. Right? Pound through it, man. Pound through it. Oh, so you, you had mentioned mentality of people. Let me focus on the word mentality, because that is the name of the podcast. And that's what we're here to dive into, Don, <laughs> is your mentality. So I want to take this opportunity to do a pivot and really, uh, let's call it get to know Don, okay? So... Tell us your story. Tell us uh, where'd you grow up. Tell us your family, kids, and, yeah, and let's, we'll go from there.
0: let's go back because I, I do believe whoever you're talking to on this show or any podcast anywhere, you're talking to them at a point in time, but the reality is they are the the amalgamation of a lot of years of, and a lot of experiences, some good, some bad, that really make us who we are and influence us. And I grew up in uh, in Clifton, New Jersey, which is about 15 miles West of New York City, lower blue, lower middle-class family, very blue-collar family. My dad sold auto parts. Maybe that had something to do with why I like old cars. Oh, I yeah. don't know. There you go. My mom was a legal secretary at the time and uh, two older brothers and younger sister. I thought we were rich. And I look back and I think about that. And say, How could they have provided such a stable and really good life? In a in, in less than desirable circumstances, when you when you kind of looked at the crime, when you looked at where we were on the ladder, and it's it, the best way I can describe it is when I'm 19 years old, I'm now a, whatever that is, a sophomore at Montclair State College, a college that's four miles from my house. I'm commuting, and I'm an accounting major, and I say to my mom, who really ran the house, my dad was fifth grade education. New England Marine Sergeant in World War II, tough guy, but a great guy. My mom ran that house, little Italian lady, and all four foot eleven of her was in charge. And I said, "Mom, could I do your tax return this year?" And she said, "Sure." So here I am as a nineteen year old kid trying to understand how to do taxes. I'm looking at my dad's income off his W two and my mom's income off her W two. And together, and I'll never forget this, it came out to $17,100. And I said to her, and this is, look, it's back in 1979, right? So a long time ago, it's not the same. But to raise four kids and have a home in suburban New Jersey for $17,000, even in 1979, wasn't easy. And so I said, Mom, you've got to you got to show me the rest of it. you got to report all your income. And she laughed at me and she said, She's Not only is this all our income, this is the best year by far your father and I have ever had. And it just really just kind of focused everything to me on on prioritization, where to spend your time, where to spend your money, how to raise your family. But I will tell you, my parents both passed away in their early 70s. And my dad wanted to stop working when he was in his early 60s, mid-60s, but couldn't and had to keep working until – Frankly, six months before he passed away, that scarred me, man. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm not going to end up like that. There, there's no way that should be kind of the end of uh, the end of life. He he was on my brother's boat, died of a of a massive heart attack out there. And I said, oh man, there's got to be a better way to to
1: live 70 years. Do you, so do you think that had a and we'll, we could talk more about that. Did that have a significant impact? Would you say that was a major, if not the driver, to creating the motivated human being that is Don Woods. I don't know. It were certainly you born, were you was born like
0: that. It certainly was part of it, but I got to tell you. Ya- and it's really clear to me. I worked hard. I wanted to get a job. I started a lawn care business when I was 15 years old. It's Donwood Lawn Care for professional results.
1: CEO of Donwood Lawn Presidency Care.
0: CEO of Donwood Lawn Care for professional results without the professional price. <laughs> I want that business card so bad I can't find one. It was a light green business oh card. 92 Thomas Street, Clifton, New Jersey. Uh, it was the funniest thing. And by the way, when I was in my second year of, of college, I sold that business to a local landscaper. And I got a check for $10,000. As a 21 or 22-year-old, I got a check for $10,000. It was pretty funny. That's very meaningful. Well, it was... Look, at the end of the day, I knew that I had to support myself. And so the biggest motivator was fear. And the, the idea of trying to do well in school, even if it was Montclair State, trying to get a job out of school wasn't about my passion and what I would love to do in life. It was about feeding myself. And
1: was it fear of, and I say this with all those, fear of ending up like your father where you had to work until almost the end? Yeah,
0: I guess at that point earlier, it was fear of, the last thing I was thinking about was age 70. I was thinking about, yeah. I was thinking about 22 and a half and 23. So fear of just
1: literally living, feeding you Living. Yourself.
0: And I think it's a really, I think that was such a driver to those, those early years. And at Montclair State, I had. I, it, it, this is so funny. She's going to kill me if she ever hears this podcast. One of our best friends, couples, I met her at Montclair State and I was dying to date her. And she had no interest in me. And I could see why. I ahead. could see why yeah. too, personally. No. But, and we are, our couple, as a couple, we're best friends today. It's 40 years later. It's crazy, actually. And, but I was interested in her. So, you know where she was going all the time? To the library. So I followed her to the library. Basically, I did better at Montclair State College because of a crush on a girl.
1: Whatever it takes.
0: That got me a job that got me a job offer at the time, Arthur Anderson. And back in, in the early 80s, there were eight big accounting firms, and Arthur Young, Arthur Anderson, Cooper's and Library, and Pricewaterhouse, et cetera. There are now four. But of all those eight, Arthur Anderson was known as the Marine Corps of the Big Eight. And a lot of people didn't want to go to Arthur Anderson because they were the Marine Corps of the Big Eight. Wait, was, when you
1: say Marine Corps, was it like <clears throat> how they managed? Was it the actual lifestyle, like the hours?
0: Was I, it I, – While I think the hours were huge at any of those firms, just like the investment banks, things like that. Anderson had this reputation for being tougher and more demanding, less perks, <laughs> if you will. And I don't know what it is because it's inside me that attracted me to Arthur Anderson.
1: Do you think and any any of that had to do with your father being in the Marine Corps? Yeah, could have, could have. And I mean, because you didn't go in the Marine Corps, but in some way maybe there was a connection, feeling like, well, this is as close as I'll get to.
0: There may be something to that, you know, subconsciously. And in college, a lot of people, if you go to a big school and you're proud of the school that you're going to, that kind of serves as that camaraderie. I didn't have that. And Arthur Anderson served that. It basically, it filled that need, I think. And I love the
1: place. They, they say almost all humans have an innate desire to be part of something much bigger than themselves. And for many there's people, a lot of truth to that. there's religion or community. But yeah, many times a part of that, for some people, a lot of it is is their school or yeah. then ultimately their company.
0: No, no question about it. And my experience at Anderson, it was seven years throughout the 80s. I had great ten- I had great clients. Tenants, when you, you
1: say clients, when you say you were like, that provided you that. That brand, that that community, that group, that uh, tribal feeling. Would you say when you handed your business card to someone and it said Arthur Anderson, would that bring you said like Yeah, that's right. Pride. I, work, I work at Arthur Anderson.
0: Huge pride. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. And pride's another big driver.
1: Phantom income,
0: fear, fear, and pride yeah. <laughs> can take you a long way. And I had great clients, and one of those clients was the Trump Organization. And
1: while you had Arthur Anderson, so how do, how does that happen? Do they assign you to <clears throat> Trump? Okay,
0: they do. I was uh, there's levels uh, from a well, assistant to a manager, etc. Uh, I,
1: w- I want to talk about the time at Trump because sure. again, I know the story, but it, it's comedy. Well, let me push pause real quick. I want to stop and talk a little bit more about Arthur Anderson. You're 22 to 29, roughly. That's okay. right. Walk me through what your lifestyle was like. Like, what was your day? What, like, yeah. Because early you, you said, hey, I want, to, I want to say this word 100 times balance. Talk to me about your balance at the time. There was no balance. There was the no time. balance.
0: That's, that's 15 hour days during earnings season. That's, I mean, I was an auditor. And there's there's a so you're, get, of us.
1: you're getting in at seven thirty.
0: You're getting in at seven thirty eight o'clock. You're leaving at 10, 10.30. ten thirty. You're certainly working at least one day during the
1: weekend. What did you? What were your thoughts about that? Was that just hey? This is how it that's is. That's what it is. This is what it is.
0: Yeah, there was. I, th- that's what it was. Let me t- actually tell yeah. you a funny story about that. So so, I'm probably there a year, maybe yeah, just about a year. Say so, I was still in my first year, and I would I was living at home before I had an apartment. So I would come home and my dad, here's a, he's a fifth grade educated New England tough guy. And he would say, where you been? I I've been working. Said, You're not working until 1030 at night. Yeah, dad. Yeah, I really am. That's kind of what we do. He says, There's child labor laws against that. I said I'm 22 years 22, old. Yeah. Child labor laws don't apply, right? So, so I don't I, think I anything of it.
1: You're salaried, so it's not like you're. Gonna...
0: i uh, hell, man. I made eighteen thousand dollars a year, and everybody else got seventeen five. But because I interned, I got an extra five hundred dollars. Let's go more pride, baby. Let's go, right? So, so I don't think anything of it. Day or two later, I get a call from the secretary of the office managing partner, John Kelly. I will never forget this. And I'm nervous as can be. Why does the office managing partner want to see me? Am I going to be fired? What's the deal? So I walk down the hall, see John, into John Kelly's office, and he looks up over those bifocal glasses that they all wore at the time, said, sit down. So I sit down. He closed the door. He said, uh, so I got a call this morning from your father. Oh, my gosh. The hair on the back of my neck the red, you could feel the hot, right, going up especially and, especially back into then. your head. Oh, my God. So I said, uh-huh. He said, your father thinks you're working, that we're working you too hard, that this that it's wrong to be that, that many hours. So I said, oh, Mr. Kelly, I said, please, let me apologize on behalf of my dad. He, he comes from a different place. He doesn't understand this type of environment. I said, I certainly have no problem with what I'm doing. And he looked up and he said, and had the stern face on him. And all of a sudden, his face softened. And he said, hey, he said, you're really lucky to have a dad like that that cares about you.
1: That's nice.
0: He said, now get the hell out of there. Get yeah. back to work. You <laughs> get to, what to get, get back to do." But it was work. just so emblematic of the time and kind of what you do. And no, I wasn't thinking about the future in any, in, in any significant way. You know, I always, the five-year plan stuff,
1: I'm not sure I'm a believer because – Frankly, it's like one day at a time. Yeah, it's a one day at a time, a little bit. You, you, you were, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, sure. you were operating out of fear of being fired. Just saying, hey, I just don't want to be fired. Of course. And if I work harder than everyone else, it's hard for them to fire me. It's that. And I got
0: to tell you, man, I had a huge inferiority complex. And the inferiority complex really came from my lower middle upbringing, going to Montclair State College. And now I'm with people from Notre Dame, from Princeton, from Stanford, from much better schools, doing the same job basically as I'm doing. And so I'm internally thinking, how am I going to compete with these guys? I'm likely to get fired. When you go back and you reflect, I mean, I remember the first note that I got from a manager on an account that said, you did a really good job, keep up the good work and stuff. The level of pride and, and having a little bit of success when you... Do feel inferior oh, is point. huge. Yeah. It's just empowering, and I think about it because not everybody gets it. I mean, if you have an if you have an inferiority complex, not doing well at work validates the fact <laughs> that you are inferior, effectively in terms of the ability to do that. And that happens a lot too. But if you are lucky enough to be able to be good at something and get that recognition, it's incredibly how empowering. Much, how
1: much of it was it you were just good at? Being an accountant, how much was it you got good because you were putting in so much effort, so much energy?
0: It's a balance, man. And we're going to get into, we should talk about this a little bit. It'll come up a couple of times. The difference, really, between IQ and EQ. And there's a lot of smart people, man. It's so much more than just intelligence. Yes, you have to be smart enough. You have to be smart enough to be able to do a job. It helps. But, man, there's no question. But it's not enough. You have to be able to read people. You have to be able to kind of listen well. And when I say listen well, I don't just mean hear the words that are coming out of the other person's mouth. You have to understand what they mean because often what they're saying is not what they mean. And the ability to do that is just critically important. I I love to say the one course in college that's never taught that would be the most valuable course in the history of man is how to influence people to do what you want when you have no power over them. I'm not talking about a teacher over a student, a coach over an athlete, an employer over an employee. What do you do when you want to convince somebody of something? And not that other person can just tell you, get lost. And there are no ramifications with whatsoever with respect to that. You have to learn how to influence. And I don't think we do a good job of teaching that. And a lot of that is, whether you call it EQ or whatever you call it, but the balance between enough intelligence and a high EQ rating, some, whatever that means, is EQ, critically
1: important. In, in, in your experience, in your opinion, is EQ something that you can teach someone?
0: I don't know if it's something you can teach someone. It's something certainly that you can make people aware of. And so if you're studying courses and it's all about the the mechanics of the course, whatever that is, or the subject matter, but not how to convey that subject matter and how to be able to influence based on that subject matter, you're missing out. So th- there's an incorporation of an understanding of the importance of influencing that, that to me should be higher up on, on the academic agenda.
1: So – not just listening, but hearing what someone's saying. Yeah, it's like listening is like, <laughs> hey, you're listening and you can repeat back to me what I just said, but are you hearing what I'm saying?
0: Kyle, the amount of times I'll be in a meeting talking with with folks who will say to me something like, I told them that, I told her that, I don't know why she did that or he did that, I told them, it's not about telling them. <laughs> because it's not that's not communicating the ability of two people one person speaking to another person that person hearing it is not a given it's on it's the responsibility of the manager my point my my position is you told somebody something and they're not doing it then you didn't communicate it appropriately that's on you that's not on the person who didn't understand or get or agree with or whatever so the notion of making that other person Having that person open to what it is that you're talking about is critical. There's a lot of techniques to doing that, including saying something provocative. I love to say something provocative to, to, because I could watch now. Now I have that person's attention. Now I can have a conversation because I've got their attention as opposed to just the old Charlie Brown, wow, wow, wow.
1: Can you give me not an example it. of something provocative? I'll give you the best example I can.
0: Yeah. This comes from actually just a few years back. There was an intern at Federal, who had been recommended by a friend of a friend <clears throat> that we hired, and about eighteen months into the job, he he left for a brokerage. He might be working for you, for all I know now, Kyle. But he left the company, and he came in to see me, and he had told everybody else he was leaving. But on his checklist, he was going to come into the CEO's office and say thanks for everything. Came in said, thanks for everything. And you, uh,
1: you already knew when he walked in. Oh, yeah. yeah, I guess yeah okay.
0: Thanks for everything. I'm going to go to work for Cushman or whoever the broker was at the time. Really appreciate the experience. I certainly hope we can keep in touch. And I just, I looked at him flat out. I smiled. I said, Eli, you're dead to me. And all of a sudden, this little checklist of things that Eli had to come in to say goodbye to the CEO. And everything. all of a sudden, I, I threw him off course. What? So Eli, let me be really clear. I said, I'm really happy for you. I'm glad this is going to work out for you. But what was in it for me? Basically, in your first year, you knew nothing about anything. We took time to teach you, to educate you on a business. In the last six months, you're starting to turn the curb, turn the corner a little bit. So, you know, you weren't such a, a drain, frankly, on, on, on everybody else. And just when you're ready to start contributing to give me a return on my investment in you, you're leaving. So that's good for you. Great. I'm happy. But please don't say to me, oh, I hope we can stay in touch. Maybe I've got somebody else that I can bring over that you can train and, and, and then leave. I said, I'm not into that. I said, I need an ROI.
1: You're so, running a company.
0: So, so to me, I want you here four years. And frankly, since that time, there's not an interview that doesn't go by that I don't do that I don't look that person in the eye and say, you got to give me, you got to give me four. There's an expectation. There's an expectation. Of course, you're not an indentured servant. Of course, that's not legally binding, as my general counsel tells me. Yeah. But it means something when a human being, who's the type of human being you're trying to hire, mm. commits something to you. And, and But again, if I just said, sure, Eli, and have a good life, and didn't say anything provocative, he wouldn't have remembered that conversation. That conversation has become legendary. <laughs> I was going to say, it's <laughs> probably... Federal, for good reason. So, yeah,
1: just, just someone who is even considering leaving after 18 months. Well, like, well I don't want to be dead to dawn, so... But,
0: well, you know, the, the bigger the bigger picture is provoking to be able to... It's the equivalent of a slap in the face to get that communication channel open. Because if it's closed, I don't care what you're saying. doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, we train a lot of new hires, obviously. And we've been very fortunate with attrition over the years. We haven't lost very many people, but there have been times where the way in brokerage is the first year they do no deals. So it's, there's no, it's not a profit center. Second year, you're kind of hopeful they break even. And then after the third year, that's, that's where you, if we speak about it like an investment, because in many ways it is That's where you're, sure. you're hopeful there's a return and then onwards and upwards from there. But sometimes we'll get agents who they come in and a year or two in we've trained and we poured so much time, energy, resources, capital, just so much. And on top of that, there's the, we're people and we build relationships and it's always hurtful when someone leaves, but they come in and say, Kyle, I just want to let you know, today's my last day. I'm going to company. And I just wanted to thank you. And I was, I always kind of stop and go, so this is how you thank me.
0: (laughs) Well, you and I talked about that a little bit yesterday. It's, I don't, I don't take it personally. It's not personal. And I got to tell you, man, that's one of the most important things to, to, for your listeners to take out too. Everybody takes things so personally. And the bottom line is, The world is not trying to solve you as an individual's problems and is concerned about you all the time. You should have three or four people in your life that really care about you. The rest of the time, they're running their own lives. So don't take it personal. I didn't take it personal on Eli, but I
1: wanted him to know. All right. Speaking of (laughs) – this is a great segue. (laughs) Speaking of taking everything personally, your time at the Trump Organization, Donald Trump, just give us a real quick... Okay, so you're at Arthur Anderson for seven years. You're, you're assigned to this account, the Trump Organization, and then one day you're working there. Walk us through...
0: Let me tell you what yeah. happened. This It really is a pretty it's funny a story. story, and there's a lot of... there's I'm, a lot never, of...
1: You told me the opening night story one time, <laughs> there's and some lessons I've to learn. repeated this story to 15 different people, because obviously President Trump comes up a lot in conversation, and I was like, well, I don't know him, but I know a guy who knows him.
0: So when I was with Anderson and working for the Trump Organization, he had a lot. I mean, Plaza Hotel in New York, the St. Moritz Hotel, Eastern Airlines at one point. That's a long time ago, it's the 80s. And then there were the casinos. And he took over, and we, for Arthur Anderson, in a lot of ways were his financial people, doing the due diligence and that kind of stuff for this half-completed thing called the Taj Mahal, which was owned by Merv Griffin and Resorts International and Trump rested control of it. It was a half-built casino. I'm still working for Arthur Anderson, but because I worked on that due diligence for so long, the guy I worked with at the Trump Organization offered me a job as vice president of finance. I'm 29 years old. I am as green as can be. I'm now going to be the vice president of finance of the Taj Mahal, making $100,000 a year. I thought I was going to be the, I could be the governor of New Jersey with that kind of, with that kind of income. <laughs> Little did I know it was only going to last nine months, but anyway, mm-hmm. so, so I take the job, I move down to the Atlantic City area.
1: So you move your family?
0: You know, I'm alone at this point. Okay. I'm in my twenties and- You're married to the profession. To the profession. So I wind up going there and I think I'm a big shot and I know nothing. And this business is a tough business. One of the things that has to happen... The casino business. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has to happen in those days, and it's not the case anymore, handling coin was always a very difficult thing in a casino. Literal coin. Literally coins. You used to put quarters in the slot machines and that kind of stuff. And so it's heavy. It's got to be counted. It's got to be moved to the bank within the casino, which is called the cage. And so... You're building a casino, so every vendor wants to sell you something. I'm the new VP of finance. Company comes in. I'll never forget this, man. I can't. I don't want to say their name because they may still be around, although I doubt it. Came in and said, we can put these small little change machines between each slot machine. And if you think about it, the old arcades where you had those big change mm-hmm. makers, these were little things that, that actually stood in between each of 3,000 slot machines. So there were 1,500 of these that were supposed to be delivered six months before the opening of the Taj. Well, the company was undercapitalized. They could not meet the schedule. And this was not your decision to oh, do Oh, this was my decision. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is dumb guy here,
1: right you here. Said, hey, I have a not, under-
0: not understanding how important not only credit is of your vendors, but – ability to perform. And that's
1: what you meant as I know nothing. I know nothing,
0: okay. right? I'm sitting here and I shouldn't have been able to make that decision, but I did. And so these changemakers are being delivered literally 24, 12, 7 hours before the opening of the Taj Mahal. Three days before they're delivered. I've been working 24 hours a day. I mean, I'm up day and night. The opening of a casino is an unbelievable thing. I collapse on the casino floor three days before the opening of the Taj. Like you just drop, (laughs) get taken to Atlantic City Medical Center. Little did I know that I was dead man walking from that point forward. Trump had heard about that. One of his executives was a weakling. There was no way I was going to survive. Now, did I know that at that time?
1: So they viewed you as a weakling because you collapsed from working three days straight? Sure. Three months, but yeah. Three months straight.
0: So okay. I go back the next day. It was just dehydration is all it was. But I go back the next day. You were
1: day. in that Mad Men phase. You were drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes. Yeah, that's what yeah, I'm doing. Right. <laughs>
0: no, I'm just trying to survive, I Kyle. Believe me. So so I go back into the casino, and these machines are being delivered, et cetera, et cetera. Here comes now the day of the opening. 1990, it was like April 7th or something like that. And I'll never forget this. Like, never. This is a big deal. Here comes Trump— He's coming up out of the floor of the Edis Arena with the smoke and the lasers and the whole deal. Did you ever met him before? Oh, yeah. No, I'd met I him all you. through the Arthur Anderson time. Up he comes and the governor of New Jersey is there. Michael Jackson is there at the opening. Which, this is a huge opening. And here's the sub-story. Just let me give you this little sub-story. This is now 1990 and the beginning of the, the, the savings and loan crisis, Okay this thing needs to open well. But in Atlantic City, this is the last casino being built. This is thousands of union jobs. This is the last project. Guess what that means? They don't want it finished. And so sabotage throughout the building. Fire set, construction issues that wouldn't allow you to finish. Like there's a lot going on here. This is a billion dollars, 750 million, I guess. New
1: was Jersey the union. This is yeah. a big, this is a problem. It's like the mob.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not the mob, but, but it is, it is clearly just economically. It's the last job. So for going into, it was pretty clear going to be a savings loan crisis of some sort. Anyway, so here comes the opening. The gates are down. There are 20,000 people waiting to come into the casino. I am now standing there fresh out of the hospital two days there. Couple, a couple IVs and you're and, feeling good. And, and, and I'm two steps up looking out over this massive casino floor. The casino, I think, was 125,000 square feet. This is, this is a Target store. That is, it's a big space with 3,000 slot machines. And if I as I'm older, have Alzheimer's and have no memories at all. You're going to remember this. The one memory I'm going to remember is those gates going up. Picture this, gates going up, 20,000 people flooding this 125,000 square foot casino floor. Each of these change machines had a red malfunction light at the top of them. As people flooded onto the casino floor and I'm standing with a very good view of the floor, all of a sudden I see blink, 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 And all of these things are malfunctioning. Like before, that feeling of holy cow and up comes the red and the hair on the back of your neck and all that. This isn't going to be good because the deal is very clear. In New Jersey, to get a license— of every dollar gambled 7 cents goes to the state well for that math to work you have to know how much was gambled and you got to be able to reconcile and with these machines malfunctioning the way it is we couldn't so they shut the casino down that night that night oh, it took forever to get it back opened everybody was fired i was summarily i was escorted out of the building uh, is, by well, security
1: that, the next like the next Monday? Uh, three days. I made it three days. Yeah. The dead man walking. Did <laughs> anyone dead talk dead man to you walking. in those three days? Oh,
0: it was, well, that's a good, you know, you know who your friends are yeah. and who they're not, right? So I'll just never forget being escorted out of the building, getting to the parking garage, getting in my car and leaving that parking garage. And you know what, what feeling I had? I'm 30 years old. I'm not angry. I'm not upset. I am relieved just huge relief and that's so important because I got to tell you for the next I'm age 30 at that time I'm 62 today right so for the next 30 years I think I can spot somebody over their head in a job better than anybody cuz I was that guy I had every, I had no business being in that in in that position at that age and at that time and It doesn't matter what the person's saying to you. It doesn't matter if they're saying, no, I got this. Everything's fine. No, you don't. I can read it. I can feel it. I can see it. It's a great lesson, and it impacted the rest of my life. Best thing that could have ever happened to me was getting fired by Trump.
1: And I was going to ask, did it feel like that? But It It did. Yeah, I was going to say, (laughs) wow. It did. Let me out of here. Is what it was about. Speaking but, of mentality, that guy's mentality is, a, is an interesting one to dive into, but we're not going to do that today. Please don't put me in that position. No, I will not. <laughs> I don't think that there's enough time in the world yeah, to yeah. unpack that. So you go to ITT, let me move this along. How do you end up at federal?
0: So, yeah, let's, let me get, to, get there for a second. The, there was one thing coming out of, of Trump, in addition to that lesson, that, that frankly changed my life. Once I met my wife there. And my wife was worked in as the hotel controller or as the financial controller rather. And, and we were dating secretly, if you will, for six months or so before the big event of firing. And I mean, she was there when on the accounting floor when I'm being escorted mm-hmm. out of the building. So she comes over and says she came home that night and said, wow, I said, I said, I'm going to go back to New York. <laughs> I got to get out of there. I said, will you come with me? And she said, why would I come with you? I have a job here. She said, I'll come with you if you marry me. And I did. Six months later, October of 1990, Stacey and I got married. Greatest thing I ever did. This, the one thing, it's really hard to go through life alone, man. You need a partner. You need the right partner. And it's an easy thing to say, it's a hard thing to find, but it's a worthy goal. And this lady has just been amazing and a key part of this of my success for the last thirty two years. You
1: sometimes hear professionals, I would say, especially men, in the sense like, "Well, hey, I need to focus on my career right now," and it's not so much the right person at the right time, or the, it's just like, "Hey, I can meet the right person, but it's the wrong time." So your advice, you're saying, "Hey, that's not a that's not a."
0: It's not just career. It's life. It's driving down the road and having the car accident and. Who's there to help to help you through stuff? It's just living, and so uh, I just believe getting through life takes a village. Victories
1: with, yeah, Yeah, team sport player. Uh, It
0: takes a village, man, and and a key partner. It's just I just think really important. That's great. Well, you could thank Donald Trump for that.
1: I can. I have. (laughs) (laughs) No, all right. So moving on, you your ITT federal.
0: So I go back to New York, and again, it's the Arthur Anderson connections from earlier that that got me that first interview at ITT. It was a step down, clearly, from what I just had, but I loved ITT. A lot of good people spent a bunch of good years there, including back into the casino business a little bit when IT acquired Caesars World. By that time, Stacey and I were not only married, but had had four children. So we had four kids under four years old. That's crazy. It really was. We, I, had, we had two boys, and then we doubled down
1: with twins. I had four kids in 11 years. <laughs> well, that's more reasonable. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> except now that and, I got an 18-month-old, I was like, man, well, it might be nice to have a little older <laughs> at this point. But no, like four kids under four.
0: Under four. And what was your role at ITT at the time? At the time, I was deputy controller.
1: And uh, what – without diving like what do you do what does your day look like So IT
0: was was at the time a big conglomerate mm-hmm. owned a lot of companies a lot of companies of Hartford Insurance Company and Grove Cranes and Farberware and Jacuzzi good lots of stuff and I was a corporate guy that was a financial person that that put all of those divisions together knew those divisions went to work with them etc Sheraton was one and I was instrumental in, in putting Sheraton and Caesars World
1: together. And they said, hey, this guy's got a little casino experience. That's right.
0: So they asked me to go to Las Vegas to be the chief financial officer of Caesars. And I really wanted this job because, and I believe this to this day, there are certain thresholds and certain titles that if you get, you never go back from. Chief financial officer is one of them. And a CFO can be so many different things in so many different companies, but I really wanted that CFO job. So my daughter had just been born, and she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. And so one of the critical things was, well, gosh, can we get the care if we move to Las
1: Vegas? And you're 34, 35 years old.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm 35 years old. In New York. In New York. That's right. And so I'm 35 and four kids under four. And so Stace and I and my daughter, my young daughter, get on an airplane, and we go out, and we are... Have a meeting with a doctor, the CF doctor, out in Vegas, and I'll never forget this. We have a nine o'clock appointment at this doctor's office, and me, Stacy, and infant Rachel walk into the appoint- the waiting room. There's thirty people in this waiting room; it's packed. We don't get to see the doctor until ten thirty. I'm steaming inside. Get in. The doctor starts talking about stuff. I I'm seeing red. I'm not open to anything he's saying. Finally, I stopped him. I said, so this is Clark County, Nevada. At the time, it was the fastest growing county in America in terms of people. I said, I just waited 90 minutes to come in here. How are you going to handle the influx of people? By the way, which does make me think of Nashville and Austin and a lot of these places, the infrastructure issues, right? Yes. And he looked at me and just said, he said, I honestly don't know. Stacey and I got back on that plane. We didn't say a word to each other. We knew we were not coming here. Got it. And flew back. IT sweetened the offer. Said I could work from New York. Go out there a couple of times a year. A year, yeah. A month. Bottom line is I agreed to do it. So I'm now commuting with four kids under four. This is why this lady is
1: so about special. Say, By the uh, way, I she's be the, interviewing Stacey. She's now the controller
0: yeah. of five hotels in Sheraton in New York. Oh, okay. With putting two of them in the minivan and driving them from New Jersey to New York. Yeah, we call that a full-time savage here. It's crazy. It was – it's crazy. How am I still married? It's crazy, right? It's wild. But anyway, Starwood comes in, makes a hostile bid for ITT. I'm now – oh, am I stuck between Vegas and New York? What am I going to do? And I get a call about this thing called a REIT. In, in suburban Maryland. It's he called said, Federal Realty Investment REIT. Trust. said, what's a REIT? The Starwood deal goes through. It's the first time I have, we as a family, have any money because those stock options get cashed in, <clears throat> and that's a good thing. So we have flexibility. So Stacey and I talk, and we agree, somewhere between Boston and Washington, D.C., we were willing, would mm-hmm. be where the next job would be, and she'd be open to that move. I get a good job offer in New York, I get this federal job offer, which I'll tell you about in a minute, in Washington, D.C. I decide I really want to take the federal job offer. The CEO offers me as the last perk to take the federal job offer, a three-year lease on a Jaguar XJR, which in 1998 to me was, oh, my God. My wife swears she lives where she lives because of a stupid car. She's not wrong. (laughs) There's definitely something to that. So. Anyway, priorities are maybe a little problematic with me, but anyway. So we decide we're going to move to Washington D.C. I got to tell you about my first interview at federal, and then you got to ask me why would you have taken this job. Go for it. I go down to, to D.C. through a headhunter. I sit in to for this interview. I'm about to meet the CEO. He again is late. He's letting me. I'm sitting there waiting 20, 30 minutes. The waiting stuff makes me crazy, by the way. So he finally comes in, introduces himself, and he keeps getting interrupted by his secretary. And I said, you know, we can do this another time. He said, no. He said, I'm trying to buy a car, and I'm having all kinds of trouble with this dealer, blah, 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 blah. So I'm a car guy. So I said, so what are you trying to buy? And he tells me. I said, have you looked at this instead? And this instead was a Jaguar something. He said, no, why don't you come over and show me? I said, okay. Puts me in his car. We drive to the Jag dealership. He says, I want you to negotiate a deal for me. Pretty cool, right? We get in the car, which is a two-seater Jaguar XK, 1998, 97, something like that. He says, I'm going to take it for a test drive. I'm in the passenger seat. He's in the driver's seat. We drive back to Federal's office. I said, "Why are we driving back to Federal's office?" We walk inside, where his girlfriend worked, now his wife, and he said, "Come on out here. I want you to see this car." She was the IR person. We walk out to the car. Out to the car. I now have to sneak in the back seat of this two-seater with one of those yes. back seats that's not really that's a back, back seat. seat. I'm in a suit and tie. I'm all scrunched into this. We drive back to the dealer. Get to the dealer and she thinks I'm the car salesman. She says, I don't want this color. I want another color or something like that. And I'm saying, oh my God, she thinks I'm the car dealer. We negotiate the deal. I go back. I fly home that day. I said, I can't work for this company.
1: That's the weirdest. That's the most unprofessional.
0: Unprofessional. What in the world is that? So why did you take the job? I took the job for a couple of reasons. First of all, I knew that even though I didn't know anything about a REIT, that the company had a lot of low-hanging fruit, and my experience with Arthur Anderson included profit improvement. I knew that I would be able to add value there for about a year or 18 months, while theoretically I would have time to learn this business. But I knew I wouldn't be, I, I knew there was stuff to do, I knew what to do in the first 12 or 18 months of the job, really important. And that's why I wanted to take it. Because I knew it would be positive early because it was so messed up.
1: You get some uh, not easy, but easy wins,
0: it, easier wins it's for win's my win. for the stuff I know I'm good at. And you got to be self aware, man. If there's anything to take from, you, you have to know who you are. You have to know what you're good
1: at, what play you're bad to your at. Strengths. You got to play to your strengths. And then surround yourself with people who shore up your weaknesses.
0: I mean, it's true. It, I, it's trite, but it's true. It's good teammates. And so I did get in there. It did work that way. We were able to, I really, I thought the world of the CEO, real good guy. We were not doing well from a stock price perspective and from some of the real estate stuff's perspective. I wanted to change the business plan and we started battling. And it's a long story that's probably not really worth getting into here. But at the end of the day, you um, ended up in the chair. I ended up in the chair. Very cool. And it was 20, 25 years ago now. Isn't that crazy? This next week, I've been at Federal 25 years. Wow.
1: Next week, May And how 56. long have you been a CEO? 20. 20 years. That's a long
0: time. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I can't believe how. I, mean, I went as a 37-year-old. Yeah, and look, we were $1.8 billion or so at the yeah. time, and it became, we're a $13 billion company, $14 billion company.
1: That's a lot of money. That's so kind of cool. In listening to your story, any company you were at for more than nine months, it appears you rose very quickly. And I asked the question earlier, how much of that skill sets are just naturally having abilities in the accounting world, but how much was, and I'm going to use a very general term, the mentality at which you approach your career, which that, that could be the sacrifice of long hours, working weekends. It could be taking on projects no one else wanted. Like, How much of that is because you were just so maniacal in your approach to achieving success in your profession?
0: Part of it, man. I mean, I'll tell you, Kyle, the cool thing about numbers, accounting, finance, et cetera, it is the red thread that works through every business. I mean, the whole reason I went to Montclair State as an accountant, not because I wanted to be an accountant for Pete's sake, but the idea that you could get into any business if you understood financials. If you understand accounting, that is the common thread. I still to this day think it is a great way to start because you don't know when you're 20 or 21 or 22 what you're going to be or what you're going to look for. But man, you want to stay flexible. You want to stay balanced and you want to have as many opportunities as possible. Accounting does that. I mean, I never said I want to be in real estate. I never said I want to be in casinos. I never said any of it. I wanted effectively to be able to see as many businesses as I could as early as I could. And so... Whether it was at Anderson with my clients, it wasn't at Trump, that's for sure. Whether it was with a number of jobs at IT or at Federal, what I wanted to always do is be helpful to other people in the company. I talk about it today at Federal. If you understand the financials of a company, you could be extremely valuable to the operators, to the leasing people, to the other – Or you could just be the green eye shade accountant that puts your head down. But there's not a lot of value added in that. That's a job. If instead you can make the numbers help that leasing person, help that operator, if they could do their jobs better, if you could partner with them, then you're a much more valuable person to that company. I've always had that mentality, and that has really played really well First of all, I'm a very social person. I like people. I enjoy being part of teams. And so so to be able to help operators, to be able to help other other people within the company with your numbers the, by having the the ability to do that with numbers is a huge
1: advantage because not a lot of numbers people do that. I find that interesting, your comment or your view about accounting and why you chose it. We have a even at this company, we have a young man in New Jersey, we have a young man in Chicago, their background, I think they're both at E and Y separate yeah. and they did that three, four years and then gotten a brokerage and it's like, they've been shot out of a cannon.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it look, real estate's a financial business, make mm-hmm. no mistake. And of course there's a marketing component to it. Of course there's an operating component to it, but it's about numbers.
1: I want to ask you a question. In looking back at your career, whether it was a period of time or a role, is there something you've ever looked back and maybe yourself or you and your wife, you look at each other and you're like, I can't believe we did that. I can't believe I did that. And I mean that from like, oh, yeah. Man, that was so hard. I can't believe I did it. Looking back, you're like, I could never do that again, but we did it. it a, a lifestyle, a period of life. Like, I mean, four kids under four working 100 hours That room. was like, it. That was it. Two
0: years. It's incredible. That the sacrifices made by both Stacy and I during those two years that I was out in Las Vegas commuting between New York and Las Vegas, which is a crazy thing. It was, it's, nobody would say that that's worth doing for when you're sitting with four kids under four. Would you
1: say it was worth doing? It was absolutely
0: worth doing. Because today, looking back, I'm 62 years old. Let's say I get 80 years or whatever. In the 80, the two were, the two set up the whole remaining 50.
1: Right? So, so that, that's course. where I was kind of leading is that every generation has its quirks. And when you talk about this, gener- it's because it, you said, hey, go get balance. But a lot of very young professionals, new professionals, they come in at 22 and they're talking about work-life balance. And I look at your life at Arthur Anderson. Trump, you were working mm-hmm. 730 in the morning to 1030 at night. Trump, you passed out from working too much. Okay, that might be too much. You you're, you're at ITT and, run, and effectively, in many ways, running Caesars in Vegas and... Two, with four kids under four, what advice, I guess, what coaching, what message would you have for someone who's a couple years into their career and they are grinding and they're saying, is it worth it for me to make this sacrifice now? It's a pay now, play later. Am I, it, you know the problem, Bud? There's no guarantees.
0: Yeah. So you can't, you, that kid would turn to me and say, sure, Don, if you can guarantee me I'm going to have and you can't. your level of success, I can't do that. And the, the the result, the reality is most of the time it doesn't work out. Would you but s- I can tell you a yes. hundred times it doesn't work', it out. Doesn't work out <laughs> if you out. don't so
1: shoot your shot.
0: So and I would even I wouldn't even say like I hated that period of time. I didn't. I mean, you go day by day. it's not what you would choose, but it's okay yeah, you get, And you could get conditioned to almost anything. You get conditioned to it and frankly, you get a level of satisfaction throughout there yeah. that that you are respected. I mean pride and respect, self-awareness, fear, they're good, motivate. They're important they things make a, in life. the Mentality they, of Don. They create who you are.
1: All right. So you're stepping into this role at Federal. Federal. Yeah. How old are you? You're 37.
0: 37. When I stepped in, and you're
1: 42 when you were the CEO. CEO. Okay. So I know this. A lot of people don't know this. Is okay. So at 29, you're fired by Trump Organization. I'd say adversity, but perhaps that actually was a relief. But then at 34, 35, you, your daughter's diagnosed with CF. Which at the time, there's been incredible breakthroughs, and we can mm-hmm. talk about some of those. That's actually how you and I got to know each other. But at the time, that's a very tough message to, oh, yeah. to receive. Oh, yeah. And then at 40, roughly, you're sitting in a meeting. Somebody says, hey, there's a, you have a lump on your neck. What happened? Yeah, I had cancer. And I'm going to get to that, but you
0: reminded me something about CF. I, that There's a lesson I want to mm-hmm. lay out here. Yeah. When our daughter was diagnosed with CF, our immediate reaction was circle the wagons and we're going to deal with this ourselves as a family. And whether that's a natural reaction or not, I don't know. I was working for IT at the time. There was a dining room at ITT that I'm a middle manager making good money, in New York, the CF Foundation came to see me. Two people, the chairman of the foundation, the CEO, a guy named Bob Bell at the time, and a woman who was the mom of a CF kid. And I know why they're coming to see me. They want money. And that's fine. Up, So I go into this ready to just have my little lunch and stroke a check or agree to stroke a check and move on. But instead, they want me to get very involved with the foundation. And I... Say to them, I said, I said, Stacey and I have talked about this. We'd like to keep this within ourselves. So to... This is the CF Foundation. The CF Foundation, yeah. right. We'd like to keep this within ourselves and handle it within our family. The woman who was with the CEO is my hero. Her name is Doris Tolson. Doris looks at me at this time and says, can I ask you a question? She says, why are you so selfish? Again, back to what I said before, Provocative. All of a sudden, my little rope meeting of sitting here with these guys, I'm now, you're on I'm, I'm listening, alert. man, yeah, right? You're I'm locked, listening. You're, you're locked in. Why are you so selfish? And I said, I, I'm not selfish. I've already told you I'm willing to contribute here. She said, I'm not saying that. She says, there's 30,000 kids with CF in this country. She says, most of their parents don't have near the opportunities or the means that you did. You could do amazing things for the entire community that other people can't do. So I'm going to ask you again, why are you so selfish? Man, that's powerful. And it was truly, it was that left hand to the jaw. Said, she's right. Okay. <laughs> and we spent the last, the next 12 years after that, part of the way we were, we met Kyle and we raised $30 million for cystic fibrosis. And it's it's uh, had an amazing, unbelievable impact. I'm more proud of that than anything in my life. Anything. And I, my daughter's going to live a, a full and happy life because of that research that's done. Not just me, a hundred people, millions of people that did it. But the importance of really using everything you can to make a difference. I've seen it. It's real. It's not fake. So I never want to forget that. Yes, Trump, really, the Trump firing really impacted me. Absolutely. My daughter's diagnosis and the, the work with the CF Foundation has absolutely changed me. And yeah, man, at age forty, sitting in a meeting with general counsel, looking, saying, "What's going on in your neck?" I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "You should have that checked out." I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, and this. And so now I have a now I have a six month period of chemo, two months after that of radiation. All of this is happening in 2002. At the same time, I'm supposed to be taking over federal. Good timing. Craziest year in the history of crazy years. Midway through that, our largest asset, Santana Row, burns to the ground. It was a bet the company bet, Santana Row, which was a mistake to have a bet the company move like that. But I'm battling through cancer treatment, trying to take over the company. That was the hardest year in my career uh, by far. And you learn a lot about yourself when you're doing that. And not to get into this too much, but but just to make this point, anybody, I believe, can do anything for a specific period of time when they put their mind to that specific period of time. For me, it was however many cancer treatments there were every two weeks for six months. And I'll never forget it. On September 15th, 2002, I was supposed to be scheduled to be done with chemo. So... But when you go in for chemo every two weeks, you're tested first to make sure you're able to handle another treatment. And one of the ways they look at it is they look at your white blood cell count and do you have enough white blood cells that fight that that disease to be able to handle it. And I go in the second time after having the first chemo, which beats the crap out of you. And I go in the second time, they say your white blood cell count is too low. And so we can't have... If we can't give you chemo this week, you'll have to come back next week. My silly mind says, no, that can't be, because that's going to push the September 15th end date out. So we are doing chemo today. How do we do it? I'm also supposed to be getting on a plane flying to California for work that afternoon. And so they said, finally, with arguing with the doctors and everything else, they said, if we give you, if you give yourself a shot, which makes the white blood cells count grow, the Drug called Nupogen. If you give yourself a shot in the leg every day going forward, we'll do chemo today. And so I did. So I'm getting on the plane, I'm going through work and everything else. But the driver is the tough period of time that you're trying to get through with a finite period of time and getting your mind there. Because if you can do that, I think you can handle
1: anything. So you have this mentality, and in, in, I Effectively ask the same question coming from different angles. So you, you know, okay, you're fired. People do get fired, but that's, that's a pretty spectacular firing. And then you push through it. You're going back to your Arthur Anderson days. You're, it appears you're outworking everyone. Your daughter's diagnosis, which is brutal to receive, you go full speed into that. You talked about the conversation you had with the lady about the, being selfish. But then you're also effectively continuing to take on more and more responsibility in your profession. Then you go to federal during a transition, you're respectfully supposed to be taking over, and there's a lot of changes happening at the company, including the biggest asset burning to the ground. You get diagnosed with cancer, but your mentality, I would say most people would, I wouldn't say just be a victim. I mean, those being victimized, those are hard things. But they would say, okay, let me just focus on the cancer and, like, my career, I'm just going to put it to the side. But you said, no, I'm just going to keep going full speed, and I'm going to attack my cancer, and I'm going to attack my daughter's diagnosis, and I'm still going to be a present father and husband. Like, why are you like this? I don't know. I just know, I just know you never go backwards.
0: Have
1: never. you always been like this? Always. Like, if somebody met you at seven years old and coached you in T-ball, would it be like, oh, yeah, Don, he was always like that?
0: Well, I don't know. Honestly, I, I don't know. But I do know that, it, I ju- I do know that from a very young age, I'm very ambitious, and it really it's incredible to me respect is really important to me pride is really important to me now as i'm older legacy yeah. <laughs> is really uh, important to if me if i
1: hear you you're saying hey don't run from those things embrace them
0: like, I tell you with the, the diagnosis o- it's okay
1: to have pride it's okay to have absolutely well yeah, absolutely and then,
0: and look this what i'm about to say is not going to be very popular but but it is unfortunately or fortunately what i believe there is so much focus today on everything being equal. And I'd love to say this because I'm in the business, online shopping. My biggest problem with online shopping is that its goal is to make everybody equal. I don't want to be equal. I've worked 60 years to not be equal. I want a special deal. I want a better deal. I want to accomplish something more. And it, it that may sound selfish. I don't see it as selfish. I see it as ambitious. I see it as value-added, as positivity, and staying positive and pushing forward is just critically important. And I do think it. I do think that notion of individual achievement is not something that should be discarded Shame. as a bad thing. I think it should be. Championed. I think in uh,
1: today's day and age, it's what they use. Is they will that mentality, they'll look to shame you if you say, hey, I want to be the CEO. No. I want to be successful. <laughs> no. Yeah.
0: Absolutely not. And it's interesting. The diagnosis. And they'll label you. The diagnosis with cancer. Nobody knows how they're going to respond until it happens. You just don't know. And interestingly for me, the day and I remember it like yesterday, it's 20 years ago, but I remember it like yesterday. The day I was diagnosed, I remember thinking at the time 40 years old. It's been a great 40 years. I can't find a piece of paper that guarantees me 80 or whatever it is. It's been a great 40 years. And instead of thinking immediately, oh, why me? My mind automatically went to, why not me? Who am I? Why not? And when you, if you, if, and you don't know that you're gonna respond that way, you just do. It's like you're watching for a, g- a game, and you don't know who you're rooting for. But during the game, it becomes clear it who becomes you're rooting clear, for. Yeah. And uh, this is kind of the same thing. And it was actually very validating for me that I should fight through this. If it didn't work out, it didn't work out. It was not defeatist. I wasn't defeatist at all. But I did not. I thought it was very possible that. Wasn't going to work out great.
1: Was there ever moments sustained periods of time where there was again the victim? Like, why did this happen? No, no,
0: never. I I know that sounds ridiculous. It's true. I I don't know why. You don't, but I didn't. I never did. Yeah, it's been a it's been a crazy ride.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So so you're still on the ride. Talk to me day to day. You're running this big company. You've been doing it twenty years. Twenty years. Yeah, I got a
0: great team, Kyle, and it does. I got a great team. I mean, at the end of the day. The I really do think the people that are most successful are the people that embrace smarter people than them. I really do. I know we talk about that. I am not the smartest guy in the world. But I do
1: have a well, very... Arthur th- Anderson, I think they were called the smartest people in the room. And, right?
0: No, they were. I don't know what they were called. They <laughs> thought they were maybe, right? <laughs> I think there was a book maybe. Something like that, yeah. yeah. You have to surround yourself with the best people. And the only way you do is if you let them lead, let them do their jobs. It's not my company and they work for me. It's our company, and they each have a key role in that company. And that's the easiest thing to say and really a very difficult thing to do and particularly to maintain over 20 years. I'm proud of that. Our team each believes this is their company
1: because it is. How much of that – because you – have some people who've been there a long time, yeah. but then you all, you also have, have some people who have come and go, even over long periods of times. They get an opportunity, and you, we've talked about someone we know, and you're like, "Hey, you got to take that job, right?" One of the things I'm most
0: proud of, and let's throw a shout out to Jim and Taylor, Jim Taylor the CEO yeah. of Bricksmore
1: right there. We're gonna we're gonna, of, we're gonna get him on this podcast.
0: What I'll help you do it. He's yeah. one of my favorite people in the world. Yeah. One of the best guys, most talented guys, you're ever going to want to meet
1: supports your classic car obsession.
0: <laughs> there is nothing better than having a company that is recognized for its talent, talented people, and people trying to poach
1: them. Yeah, that's okay.
0: I don't want people leaving for lateral jobs.
1: Or after 18 months.
0: Or at, well, at that level, that, that's a different level. But when you're talking, I mean, Jim was the CFO of Federal for a few years. We had, he had been my business partner at Wells Fargo Bank for 20. Extremely good friend. He got the opportunity for a CEO job at a big company. At I mean, a, at a publicly good company, for you. Yeah. He only got that opportunity because of Federal Realty, <laughs> right? Because he did a great job at a company with a great reputation. You put those things together, and it helps people. That's our best recruiting tool. So I, I don't have any issue with that. Two to, to other guys you were. You'd say, Jim, you're dead to me. I, you certainly not. In fact, I, You I'll said be, that in other
1: facets to. Jim's I'll be with stuff, Jim on Friday night yeah, no, <laughs> this I know, I know, week. So, not at all. <laughs> no, I love Jimmy. That's funny. So what is day? What is a day in the life of Don Wood look like today? What's
0: different today? So I have I. I'm 62 years old. I plan to retire when I'm 65. From from federal, do people know this? Yeah, I think so. Oh, they do now. It's it, and they do now. Breaking are breaking news, we, the Matthew's Mentality Podcast. This yeah. is where it, it is. No, I, I I certainly intend to retire. Can I can
1: I come to your retirement?
0: Please. I don't even know if I'm getting one because I'm not throwing it. Let's see who else. Does. All right, but
1: well, no, I'm going to talk to Burkus. He's going to th- We'll make sure. Yeah,
0: it, but Burkus is the president of the federal. We've been together over 20 years. What I spend time most of my time doing right now is really trying to make sure that. Whatever, however we transition, then it makes sense. This is a tough time for this industry. It's not really a tough time for the leasing of shopping centers. It's actually a very good time operationally. But when you think about capital markets, when you think about the public companies who owns them, there's passive money now, not rededicated money that drives it. There's generalists. There's there. There are a lot of changes in the overall business and legacy is really important to me. <laughs> the value of my shares long after I go nice. away is very important to me. And I want to make sure that effectively we're doing the right thing and we're, we're setting ourselves up for the next 20 years of success. I'm, I'm real proud of what we've done and we don't want to lose that.
1: I do want to talk about the market today. But before I do, what, what, what happens after you, you retire from federal? Well,
0: I don't know. I do have a lot of interests. Which and I'm blessed with, and it's silly, but this collector car hobby kind of thing, which goes back since I to, to when I was a very young kid is real. I love it. I'm obsessed in it's some like, you ways. Know, I mean, it's
1: find something you're passionate about and you'll never work a day in your life, but this is something you truly are impa- passionate about.
0: Clearly. And I'd love to sit. I'd love to find a way to get me on the Haggerty board. Find a way to, to to get me to be an advisor to bringatrailer.com. Find a way to, to, to get me into that world, buddy. And uh, and we're go, talking.
1: Go be the CEO of Hagerty. Don't <laughs> be on the board.
0: Well, all I'm saying is that there, I don't know how to best do it now, but that part of, of my love will be part of that period of time. And I still love real estate, man. I love coming to work every day. So so the notion of being continuing to be involved in real estate in some other way is another piece.
1: Again, because of your mentality. You're not, you don't strike me as a guy who's going to be gardening for three hours a day and then sitting and watching no Fox, Fox News at night yelling yes. at the TV. There's no chance, man. No chance. All no. right. So uh, real quick, and then we'll wrap up. What's going on right now in the market, in the economy? Just your opinion, okay? Nobody has the crystal ball. Yeah. Let's we'll start in commercial real estate, and then we can – I'd like to touch on the banking crisis. And sure. What's happening. Well, Lexi, it's all so. related.
0: And, and, and from – let's make sure you get the perspective, uh, perspective that I'm giving because my perspective is as a public company CEO. Yeah. And that's different than somebody that buys an office building, builds an office building, residential building, shopping center, etc., and has to get it financed. The beauty, the single biggest beauty of being a public company, especially one with the reputation that federal has and longevity that federal has been around since 1962, is that we can use the unsecured debt market primarily to finance our business. Last week, we raised $350 million. We raised it yeah, overnight at 5.5% or 5.4%, something like that. But effectively, which is more than it was, but that's okay. But that's just- Significantly
1: per- cheaper than the asset level that you uh, know, we're seeing.
0: It is, and it's certainly-
1: And it's available.
0: It, it, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. So, so when I think of, when I talk about the, or think about the credit side of the balance sheet, whether it's debt or equity, I think about it from a different perspective, I know we're going to be able to raise the money we want to raise. I also know that there is a huge oversupply of office space in this country. And there are leases that are coming due where there will not be demand, that those values are changing. The bank lending associated with those deals will be problematic. It's hard to imagine. It won't be problematic over the next few years. That will seep into other parts of real estate. That's, again, I don't know how to best – this i will take those issues all day long over the issue that's not an issue at all and that is demand for my product so when you the best thing that came out of COVID, by far was that realization by human beings that they are social creatures
1: Yeah, because in different parts of the country whether it was six weeks or six months or in some markets two years being effectively legally locked in your house or socially ostracized if you're outside I think I'm just I'm basically just co-signing what you're saying is people are like I don't like this I like to be outside I like to be around people I like to be walking and shopping and talking and eating I like these things.
0: It's incredible, Kyle, and really it is so affirming of the product that we build and own because the
1: decade before COVID, because <laughs> my background was retail. That's how we got to know each other. Was oh, retail's dead. Oh, oh, online this, online that. And that that was never true. But really, to your point, COVID maybe just, if not reminded, made everyone aware how much they love to get out of the house. I
0: joke that it was actually federal realty that created the global pandemic to close things down because 2016 to 2020 was – for us, it was purgatory. Yeah, it's doldrums, it was too. basically just bumping along the same spot because there was no need for brick and mortar. And it was hard to achieve growth. And- it was, sure, and why do you need brick and mortar? Everything's going to be delivered mm-hmm. to your house, everything. COVID really put that nice, very novel notion to bed.
1: Well, and I
0: think that's sustainable.
1: What? How much of the what's going on in office is... Due to the whole work-from-home paradigm shift. Oh, a lot. A lot. but
0: okay. a, a, a lot. And I mean, look, the major cities in the country, I mean, I'm not bullish on. I'm not bullish on downtown San Francisco, downtown New York. You're talking CB, York. CBDs.
1: CBDs.
0: What has happened is those first-ring suburbs where the 45-year-old lawyer who was going down into D.C. Yeah. five days a week is now going in once or twice a week and is staying at his home in, in Bethesda and what that's done for incremental demand is huge. And but that doesn't mean that if I'm downtown DC, I I've I'm happy about what I'm doing with my office building. I'm in a lot of trouble. Yes. If I've got office product in DC. And
1: that affects high street retail down there too. Sure it does. Because you're losing your entire you're, daytime, there's your daytime pop. population. Yeah.
0: So, no, it's it all I think the CBD I think the way to look at it is the circle of demand is now much broader than just CBD. It, it encompasses that first ring. How thing. are
1: you – and you can be as specific as you want. How at Federal are you managing this work from home?
0: So principally – so Federal Realty only has 340 employees. So that's a – so that gives me much more flexibility with how and to handle something. How much something.
1: of them are in the headquarters and how much of them are out? 160
0: the or 70 or okay. so at the so headquarters. The then a big office in San Jose, one in Philly, one in Boston, et cetera. The point I always want, I never, ever want to make a centralized decision if I don't have to. I'm a states' rights guy. (laughs) I believe, I do believe that you push the decision to the place it can be made the best. And I'll give you a great example. And look, if I've got 20,000 employees, I don't have that flexibility to the same way. But with 340 employees, one of our largest departments is the accounting and the financial side of the business. My chief accounting officer feels very comfortable that she can run her operation with employees in two days a week. I'm not going to second-guess that. I don't want to give her an excuse. And so for two years, that, that's what happens with those those operations. So it's, my it's creative results. people, I want them with me, ma'am. Yeah. I want them with me. I'm absolutely a touchy-feely kind of person, an eye contact kind of person. And for my direct reports, we're in all the time.
1: Got it. The creatives, leadership—I, you know—I say it's like a band. You could all play your instruments in different rooms, but it's only music when it's played together. That's exactly right. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but I could understand on the accounting side of the financial side. At the end of the day, it's results and scoreboard. And
0: we've uh, got—it's funny. If you were walked into my living room right now or family room right now, you would see a puzzle of our whole family that one of the kids got us for Christmas, and it sat out there with a thousand pieces or whatever Mm -hmm. else for the longest part of the last four months, and it is now complete. And it reminds me, where you sit at any point in your life is an amalgamation of each of these pieces to be able to create a full picture. And until you've lived it, there are big parts of that puzzle that are just plain open. Be open to them be open to what pieces fit where. And then as you get through the majority of your career, it's far more complete and it, far, and it gives you far better perspective as to that total picture than it would earlier on. And I just think that is it, it's such an important way to look at things. Know what you don't know. Always stay open.
1: What does the market look like in 12 months?
0: Hard to say on the debt side. it's Where are it, rates? Rates are, rates. might have – I'm hopeful rates have peaked. Yeah. We're going to see. Now, where spreads come, we're going to have mm-hmm. to see because that that's the other component of the total cost of money. But, I, but I'm hopeful that rates have peaked. I do think there will be more job layoffs. I think you'll certainly see a cooling economy. I think the Fed – I like to say, look, when the Fed wants you to stop investing, believe me, the Fed will get you to stop They'll investing. <laughs> yeah. They'll keep raising and, until something breaks, right? Yeah, I mean they win.
1: Something did break 60 days ago. Silicon Valley Bank. Yep. Then Signature. Do love person. how the
0: Fed jumped right in though. Yeah. I gotta they, tell you, they, I do. Well,
1: they provided a comfort did. and they did it fast. Yeah. I
0: thought that was pretty good. We'll see what happens going forward, but it certainly stemmed what could have been a much worse situation.
1: You've been through market cycles, and these are the ones I wrote down. Okay, the dot com bus, right? At, and I'm just talking your time at Federal reallycom yeah. uh, September 11th yep. was a big thing. Obviously the GFC, that was the thing, COVID. And now whatever this cycle is, great monetary tightening, banking crisis, what lessons have you learned throughout these in a leadership role or what advice would you have for any individual or business owner, operator, executive, anybody listening in, here's what I learned in tough times?
0: Well, there's a few things that that are specific to real estate that are important, I guess, for me to start with. And that is, first of all, this acknowledgement, you have to acknowledge that our business is cyclical, that there are going to be ups and there are going to be downs. Isn't this amazing? Well, if I had known that. Well, right. But, the, but it's so important to acknowledge it because if you do acknowledge it, then part of your business plan goes to not how do I make a lot of money during the good times? How do I sustain through the bad times? And it's a, I'm a risk-averse person generally. So, so we do it with only the best quality stuff, with a low-levered balance sheet so that you have room for when time goes bad, with diversity of tenant base so that you don't have any, we don't have any tenant that makes up more than two point seven percent of the income stream. So when Bed Bath and Beyond finally grabs the bed and, and says goodbye, I, I, I
1: saw Jeff's quote in the Wall Street Journal. It's not two the days end ago. of the world, oh, yeah. right. If in fact, if I think your the rents they were at, they could actually be marked up. Oh, they will be. again. Yeah, you know. they will. I mean,
0: the company will be worth yes. more once this is all over. Yes, I guess the point I'm trying to make there is if your mentality really is for the long term then you manage for the long-term. You really do. You don't just say the words. You don't try to kill it during the good times and then stop completely during the bad times. You try to manage through this if you truly have a long-term view. So we don't lay off a bunch of our development people, even though we can't make development numbers make any sense today because building that back up is impossible.
1: It is brutal. Right. I know this won't last forever.
0: And yet I know it won't. And it kind of goes back to before. The problem with prognosticating as to what next year is or the year after that is, is all you really have are economic indicators as to what it is. And the notion of economic indicators being the only thing to think about is flawed. It really is about emotion. It really is about (laughs) do I feel comfortable investing a dollar? What would make me? Sometimes it's a hunch. Sometimes it's, a, it's an international event. Sometimes it's something that's local to your community. But it's about the decision makers who decide when a dollar of capital is going to be invested in something, in a person, in a building, in a company, whatever it is. When that person starts deciding, that's a wave, and it happens fast. And so, so it would not surprise me to the, if, if you saw a quicker – Recovery than anybody's predicting, because it is mentality. You've got people are generally hopeful. You need to give them a reason to hope. When they find it, they go in
1: hog wild. And with technology, that herd mentality, that FOMO, which drives a lot of people fear missing out, with the access to technology, Twitter, all this now, the herd gets so much bigger, so much faster, so much faster, (laughs) scarily. Yes, (laughs) scarily. We were talking last night. It was at dinner. Is a a billion a minute. Oh,
0: the SVB withdrawals? A billion I mean, in cra- That couldn't That's have wild. happened without that cell phone in your hand. Couldn't have happened.
1: Last couple questions. All right. What advice would you have for anyone listening in who says to themselves, well, I want to, I want to achieve the professional success Don Wood ha- has or put myself in a position to do that? Like what advice from a mindset, from That's, a commitment mentality standpoint?
0: I so don't want to sound like some guy that says do this and mm-hmm. this will work because that's such nonsense. But there are some basic things about being yeah. a human. Be humble. Be humble. Do what you need to do. Try to be important to others. The more valuable you are to others. I say it to my three boys all the time. When COVID started, work from home started. Go in, man. Go in. Make sure that you have Face-to-face contact, face-to-face conversations, that you have lunch together, that effectively human beings need each other. They're not going to think about that guy sitting in Sun Valley when something unexpected hits the fan in New York. It's who's there, who can help me. And so so this ability to be accessible, the ability, of course, you have to work hard, but do it humbly and, and Back off your five-year plan a little bit because the one thing that I've – this probably comes from being a dopey Montclair State kid along the way. But it seems that the higher the education levels you have, the more planned things become, whether it's this five-year plan or this is how it's going to work. It doesn't work like that, and you can't be thrown off your stool when step two of your five-year steps – Don't happen that way. You got to be flexible. You got to move over to that and come up with a new plan. And that kind of openness, flexibility, balance is just critically important to giving yourself the best chance. None of it's guaranteed. I mean, if I took that job in New York instead of Federal Realty, maybe it would have worked out well. Maybe it didn't. If I didn't take the job at Caesars out in Las Vegas and put my wife through hell for two years, maybe it would have still worked out. Probably wouldn't. So there's a million things along the way. You can't get caught up in them because you can't tell. Move yourself along. Take care of your business. Work hard. Stay humble.
1: Last question. What would you want someone to say about you? If if we were to make your life into a movie and someone was to watch this movie, what would you want someone to say or to describe Don Wood in a professional sense? I want the basic,
0: I want to hear that's a really good guy that I have a lot of respect for. And good guy, by good guy, I mean, and you know this and I know this, I mean, there are people I will not do business with today. Life's too short. I have no, if your belief that there has to be a winner and a loser in every deal, I will not do business with you. You have to believe in the win-win. And so from my perspective, that comes across as, yeah, he's a good guy. I'll do a deal with him. Yeah, I trust him. Yeah, I have respect for him. That's what it's about. I have to know that the time spent on the planet, professionally, personally, it's all the same, frankly, that that there is a, an acknowledgement of the respect for the way I've led my life. And I think that's what we should all aspire to.
1: Don, this has been awesome. I can't thank you enough for coming out to Nashville. I'm not going to lie. I was kind of hoping you brought another car with you this D- time. D- bring your wallet. We'll May- bring your wallet. <laughs> maybe this that, is easily Maybe that Series 1 Corvette you talked me out of, you said, you don't want this car. And you won't fit in it. Dude. You won't fit in it. Big ex-football player. You can't fit in that. Yeah, I'm big in the wrong places now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just uh, thank you so much for coming out. It's Pleasure. been great hanging. I can't thank you enough. This is Episode 1. We'll, we'll do this again when we hit Episode 100. I'm going to come out and see you in D.C., but... Yeah, thanks so much.
0: Sounds good. good having you. Absolute Thank you. pleasure. Thanks,
1: guys. Let's get down, let's get down to business. Give you one more night, one more night to get this. We've had a million, million nights just like this. So let's get down, let's
0: get down to business.